PGA fans, we are back with another episode. Uh, how are we going to win some money this week? We're, we're back in Vegas. Um, a course that we've never played a tournament at before. So I think it's going to be a unique, uh, there's a few unique things about this tournament. Not only have we don't have any data on the, on the course, uh, but in addition to that, it's a no-cut event. There's 78 golfers, and it's a pretty loaded field, the most loaded field so far this season. So a lot of moving parts. I think it's going to be a lot of fun this week, a lot more fun than some of these JV tournaments that we've uh, we've been going after. Um, and I'm excited to kind of break it down with my two favorite trusted co-hosts, as always, Spencer Aragiar and Sia Najad. Sia, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. I actually, I got to admit to you guys, I cheated a little bit uh, on this one. I listened to your show from that you released earlier today on the Be The Number pod, which I know Spencer captains that ship. Uh, first of all, it was really good. Second of all, I'm glad you played Good Chalk, Bad Chalk, because I always we always forget to do it on this one. Uh, maybe we can run it back at the end of the show here. Um, I always trust your ownership numbers more than mine. So, Joel, maybe you can run that. I'm doing well. I'm actually coming off a really good DFS week. I was pretty good in golf. Not great. By the way, message to DraftKings. Contest selection still really isn't up to par. No pun intended. It really truly isn't. So I hope that, you know, as the tournaments go, this is a talented field. We should have better contest selection. But I did really well in NFL DFS. Definitely had my best week. Kind of crushed it. Could have been better. Um but the point is, I've got some extra money to throw around in golf, so let's do this thing. Yes, yes, I love it. Uh, that's the way we need to attack the week, with that kind of confidence. Spencer, talk to me. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well also. You know, I want to thank you again, Joel, for coming on Be The Number. I was talking to Sia off-air. I think uh, if it all works out, Sia's going to be on next week, so be on the lookout for that. But uh, doing well, happy to have another tournament back in my backyard with it, and uh, just excited to get going into it. Perfect. I love it. Um, now, it's, it should be a relatively quicker show since we only have a 78-man field. Like I said before, a no-cut event. Uh, so that does change things a little bit. Uh, but before we dive into things, I want to start with a bit of a breakdown. So I do know because we, I did the show last night with Spencer that Spencer does have a breakdown of how he's using this course. Obviously, there's course, compar um, course comparisons that you can use with other courses and things like that. For me, I kept it pretty simple this week in terms of uh, almost deprioritizing off the tee, looking for, obviously, as always, the approach game, some around the green game. And then recent form and value are my two biggest things, right? So who's coming in recent form and where can we find some price discrepancies to find some real value this week? That's how I'm prioritizing my picks. Uh, before we get to Spencer, see, how about you? Anything you're looking at for this course? So I, I'll say this. I can't wait for Spencer to talk about his model. But, you know, I agree with you guys from the Be The Number pod that this is, you know, probably a second shot golf course. Uh, I don't think there's much trouble here. You know, Spencer, I know you're local here. I don't know if you've sort of been on the summit grounds, but but I can say I just read um, Rick Rick Run Good, Rick Gaiman. He had kind of a thread. He was on the grounds today. And it's sort of what we thought. You know, there's not much trouble lurking here. The rough is not too severe. Um, the, the fairways are generally wide. Um, around the green game, which I know is, a, is somewhat of an emphasis for you guys and some others, um, it looked like the up and downs were going to be relatively easy. That doesn't mean around the green is not a factor here. It just means that like even your pedestrian 
uh, ARG players can can probably do at least okay here because there's not a lot of trouble around uh, these greens. The greens seem to be pretty easy. So to me, this really is, like you guys had already said, a second shot golf course. Um, there's obviously some other things peppered in there that Spencer's going to talk about. But I'll tell you one thing. Because this is a no-cut event, and because there are there is a lot of talent in this field, I think one thing to sort of emphasize, especially in the GPPs and in the bigger tournaments, is just pure game theory. And just, you know, for me, a lot of my tournaments are going to be comprised of like a guy I think is going to win the tournament. Like, let's say I think Victor Hovland's going to win or Louie or something like that. And then I'm going to try to pick some guys that just aren't really highly owned that I think have upside. I'm not just going to randomly take guys that are lowly owned, but but you kind of know what I mean. I, I think when you have four days as opposed to having a cut where it's potentially only two days, I think you can kind of flirt with the numbers a little bit more in terms of taking those lower owned guys. So that's definitely going to be a focus this week that wouldn't necessarily be as big of a focus in other weeks. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree. It's all about – you're, like you said, it's all about that no-cut event because you're guaranteed those four days. Like, if you recall, I don't remember which tournament it was, but it was one of the more recent no-cut events where Hideki went, like, eight over on the first day, and everyone was like, oh, man, he's out of it. And then he crawled back, and he had, like, three good days, and it was like, had it been any other tournament, he misses the cut, and he kills you. But that tournament, he was pretty good because he fought back, and that one day didn't kill you. So that's the type of thing that you can get here this week. But without further ado, um, the ever-coveted breakdown of each tournament, probably the most detailed and in-depth I've seen out there. Uh, Spencer, break it down for us. I, I think it's an interesting point that Sia just said. If uh, around the green is de-emphasized, obviously guys like Hovland and players like that will get a boost. Um, so I think that's an interesting note. But as both of you know, I prefer weeks where we have more concrete data at our disposal uh, but the Summit Club's probably about as good of a venue as we could get for going into this with limited knowledge. Uh, from a proximity standpoint, the course is just a few neighborhoods down the road from where I live. Uh, in theory, I could walk and harass Jason Day in about five minutes if I wanted to. But uh, I want everyone listening to think of a property that's an enhanced private club setup. It costs $200,000 a year to become a member, which is probably a Friday night showdown slate for you, Joel. But it's luxury <laughs> Vegas in its design. Uh, that point alone should express express what kind of scoring conditions we should expect. It's going to be a course a member can enjoy but still be challenged. For a pro, it probably becomes easier if you have the distance off the tee to carry some of the dog legs and fairway bunkers. Uh, but let's talk a little about what we do know when looking at the course itself. So 7,459 yards, par 72, bent grass greens. That's information that can help point us in a general direction. We get a, an idea of what you know, we have four par fives that always enhances the need for par five scoring, especially when conditions are easy. The bent grass greens should allow us to highlight a specific grass type to hone in on for our research. And the yardage of nearly 7,500 yards shows that distance might come into play. Now, I do want to talk about the altitude discussion going on throughout the industry for a few reasons. Yes, we have an elevation here that's slightly above 2,000 feet, but it is important that we don't go wild in our views and say that the ball is going to carry forever. You know, I used to play baseball back in the day, and I can definitely tell you I wasn't hitting 500-foot home runs, <laughs> which, by the way, I would assume that if we were in Colorado, I would be doing so. But uh, Nevada's higher altitude than other states, you know, the coastal courses and things like that. But it's much lower in Vegas than it is in other Nevada locations. So I don't want people to get caught up in this notion that, like, we're so far above that everything is going to carry forever. Um, 
The second part of the research can be done by looking at who the course architect is for the track. Certain guys build their properties in the same fashion over and over again. And Fazio is one of those people. So when I look at Fazio designs, there are a few notable characteristics that always seem relevant. There's a lot of deep bunkering that surrounds undulating fairways and greens. Larger putting surfaces seem to be quite common. Uh, that naturally allows us um, to look at three-putt avoidance. And I think that comes even more in play when we add into the equation that this surface should be fast because of the Vegas heat. Most of the properties are rather open in design, meaning distance off the tee helps to cut off any of the real hazards. And long iron play was a staple of practically every Fazio course that I handicapped over the last few years. Um, there's other smaller factors that will matter. But as I mentioned, this is one of the better tracks for zero data at our disposal. So I weighted my model as such. Uh, from a statistical perspective, I started with total driving for 17.5%. That's an 80-20 split between distance over accuracy. I want golfers that can carry and cut off any of the danger along the way. Par 5 birdie or better percentage for 17.5%. That's always going to be on the heavier side for me when we get a par 72. I have a weighted bent grass category for 15%, which essentially incorporates a 50-50 split between strokes gain total on bent grass and strokes gain putting on bent grass. The goal is to find who likes the surface and then marginally add putting into the mix so we don't just get the premier ball strikers like Hideki or Grio and these guys that don't finish their work once they put it close. Strokes gain total at easy courses for 12.5%. Uh, this should be another birdie fest like most weeks on the PGA Tour. Proximity from 175 plus yards for 15%. 10% on three-putt avoidance plus around the green. That's 60% three-putt avoidance avoidance and 40% around the green. So it's not a very big weight for me around the green to begin with. It's 40% of a 10% total for me. And then I close it up with weighted bunker play for 12.5%. That stat there is made up of 70% sand safe percentage from the green side sand traps and 30% GIR percentage from fairway bunkers. As I mentioned, players with more distance will be able to cut off the dog legs. So that's why I weighed the green side ones heavier. I love it. I love it. That's so that's something for you're not getting that level of detail for this tournament anywhere else. I can guarantee you that. So, uh, I mean, you're probably going to want to rewind that and listen to that back just to get some those details in for when you're breaking this tournament down. But uh, super helpful, Spence. So thank you for that. Um, and with that being said, I think this is a good time. Let's just kind of dive right in. I, I know, like I said, it's a shorter field, a shorter field, only 78 golfers. So we should be able to go through it pretty quickly. Um, I'll actually get us started today. So um, at this top range, you know, for me, kind of similar to the last couple weeks, I actually don't think we have to start here. Um, you know, there's a few guys up here that I would play. You know, I think I like DJ the most, mainly for ownership purposes. To get a guy like DJ uh, at the most, you know, expensive and under 10%, which is looking about where he is now. Um I think that's a pretty good uh, discrepancy for this type of a tournament. Other than DJ up here, you know, I like Morikawa. I think we can get the best iron player in the world. Um, doesn't look like his ownership is going to be too high. If it does creep back up to the mid-20s, and I would I would go away from there. Um, I think, you know, Shoffley's in play, but I don't like where his ownership number is going for this type of a tournament. And then, uh, and then Rory, you know, is, is okay, too. I know that's Spence's guy, so I don't want to steal his thunder on that, but – uh, for the most part, I think we can very much so be more focused in the 9K range, be more balanced this week. So a few shares up here, but for the most part, it's not my favorite grouping. Uh, Spence, how about you? Who are you looking at up here? 
Yeah, I, I think it's important to note that no-cut tournaments lend themselves to being more boom or bust. You know, Joel, you and I talked about this on my show, Be the Number, where there is a possibility to gain leverage on the field if you can get yourself to go with a flatter build and not be so much stars and scrubs in that approach. Uh, that's just a narrative that's been overblown throughout the industry because we get four rounds from every golfer um, and we can garbage pick at the bottom. Like, there is some truth to that uh, to an extent. But the worst golfers will still be the worst scorers. And if everyone is taking that same approach, there's no advantage to be had over the field. So I would be cautious in trying to go that route, even though I do believe we have a handful of notable guys at the top to stack. Um, I just want to make it clear that I'm not saying to avoid this group. I think most are in play in some way or another. But a stack of DJ and Rory would be much savvier, in my opinion, than stacking, you know, let's say Xander and Morikawa um, on that. But I do find myself slowly moving out of this range as a whole. The two I will have the most exposure to will be Rory and Dustin Johnson. But if you made me power rank this group with a with the price, ownership, and all of that coming into play, I would rank them Rory, DJ, Thomas, and Xander. Um, that's the only four I will play. But let me give you a few thoughts of the on the group as a whole. So Dustin is technically overpriced because because of his Ryder Cup performance. But this is one of those spots where I can live with it because there is a chance to leverage his ownership to the field. He ranks inside the top five of my model and has excelled on these fast bent grass type properties where scoring is easy and distance matters. As I mentioned, Rory's probably my preferred play when looking at stats and early ownership. Uh, that's because you can easily pair him with another big gun or start a lineup with him separately. The perception is just so bad around him lately that it's opening up a possibility to get him under the radar. And this is the perfect layout where he can get back on track. He's shown us the upside in the past with Fazio courses, and he's the number one ranked total driver in my recalculated model. I don't have any problems with Thomas as long as the ownership doesn't go nuclear. The no-cut dynamic always comes into play for the public with him at, at these types of courses, but he's averaged 5.875 shots tee to green over his last 12 trackable starts. Um, as you just mentioned, Joel, I, I think Xander's worrying me a little bit from an ownership perspective here. Uh, he ranks number one in my model from a statistical perspective. He has knowledge of Summit Club, but if he's going to be the chalkiest play on the board, I am kind of fine going elsewhere with it. Um, at least if we're talking like really big MME type tournaments, um, I think you can make an argument for him in other spots. Speed is going to be a wild card. I would have preferred if he was a single digit uh, person in ownership. And then Morikawa, I know I'm on my own island on this one. I know everybody's on Morikawa this week, but... I, just everything about this is in my model, in the numbers, is telling me not to go down this road. Like, yes, he lives on the course. Yes, he has the course thing. And, and that's making the ownership higher. It's making more people want to play him. And he's burned me before. He's going to burn me again. Uh, but I'm going to be different than most and take a stance against him. If he wins, he wins. And I'm kind of fine living with that. It's, that's very fair. Um, I agree with you. If the ownership gets too high, then... I'll come off of him as well. Ownership is a big thing here. Uh, just so you guys know, you might catch me looking down. I was just looking at some of the odds, and I saw something that I thought was a red flag in terms of way too good of a number. So I'm putting a bet in now before I think it might change, and I'll get. To, I'll let you know what that bet is before the end of the show. But see a top range. What are you looking at? Nice cliffhanger. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm always going to agree about skipping the elite range. I think almost tournament to tournament. I mean, don't get me wrong, because it's a no-cut event, the cream usually does rise to the top. But, I mean, we always think we need to jam in a, a top-end guy or a top two, you know, one or two guys at the top. And I think that's what people are doing here based on ownership. And then they're going down to like the low 7K range where there's like a lot of val perceived value with like your Aaron Wises of the world and, and guys like that. And that's totally fine. But 
I've always found that that 9K range is you're going to have guys popping in the same capacity as you will the 10K range. Now, granted, the 10K range is rich with talent. So if I'm going to select some guys, Colin is one of those guys. But if he's going to be like the highest owned guy with like a Xander Schauff, like there's just no reason for me to, to do that. I, I wrote up Colin in my initial picks article, which, by the way, is free for everybody on windailysports.com. But, you know, again, this is the ownership game. You only have a 78 person field. It's a no cut event. I don't want to be with 30% of the field or whatever his number ends up being. I do like him. I do like the home course narrative for, for this situation in particular. Uh, I love his iron game. Um, the form has been a little questionable, you know, lately, but uh, I trust that Colin's going to bounce back better than most people uh, just because he seems like such a focused golfer. Uh, but I, I like Colin. I mean, I'm not going to spend too much time here. I think Jordan Spieth is really interesting if he ends up being the lowest owned guy in this range i'm probably not going to be on rory so it's probably going to be colin and and maybe jordan spieth based on ownership for me and it looks like xander and maybe colin too are going to be sort of rostered out of my range in the sense that they're just going to be too high so if that's the case then i'm happy to start in the 9k range and maybe grab a spieth or maybe grab a dj if he's kind of lower than some of these other guys and I'll just add, like, as Sia and I think Spencer, you both have already referenced on the show. One thing I want to reiterate and highlight is ownership is probably even a little bit more important with this no-cut 78-man field than it would be in a cut event with 150 golfers where it's just going to be so much disparity that you can get away with a lot of things here. You know, ownership is going to be important. Like, guys are going to creep up higher owner percentages because it's half of a field of normal and things like that. So keep that that in mind for sure. Uh, so let's look at that. That's a good idea. See, let's look at some of the, the comments that we're getting. Uh, Charlie, uh, um, always a, a loyal listener to the show. Uh, appreciate the shout out. We, we killed it last week. Thanks, Charlie. Um, so I'm confused. Is that is that coach? It, it must be coach. Yeah. I mean, he must have like th- like three burner accounts or like shadow <laughs> accounts or something. And this is this is one of them. Uh, yeah. Coach is is great. He's always given us um, mega insight. So we always appreciate it. And we're waiting for some insight on this show. You've got a you got about 30 minutes or so, uh, coach. So so drop some knowledge on us, man. You're the best. Uh, and then, of course, Wes uh, kind of confirming what what. Uh, Spencer was saying, which is, you know, Morikawa isn't even top 10 in his model. You know, I got to actually double check where he is in my model, but yeah, he's not. I mean, but th- but that makes sense, right? Because his play as of late really hasn't elite, but it's just a question of it. just like any other elite golfer. Can he recapture it pretty quick? Yeah, the, the answer is probably yeah, that. But yeah, it's still a good point regardless. And just to add to that, like Morikawa was 22nd in my model, so he didn't even crack the top 20 for me. Wow. Yeah, I'm actually uh, – what's really crazy is I'm – oh, there he is. Okay. Well, he's 11th in my model, but can, can we be honest real quick? Do I trust my model as much as Spencer's? No. Spencer's okay. definitely no to that. So, uh, But still, 11 isn't exactly great regardless. Good yeah, it's a negative value. 100%. 100% negative value. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with the Morikawa fate, even though, again, I wrote him up in my article. I think he's a good player, but when you consider ownership percentages, uh, it might have to be a fate at this point. As the one of the three of us who probably likes Morikawa the most, he's the lowest on my model of all three. So that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> probably not. All right. Well, that's okay. This is why we're here for the 9K range. And like I said, this is more, more of a, for me, more of a priority. I think I can get I think this is the type of tournament where, like, I don't think necessarily one of these top guys is guaranteed to win. 
And I can easily see you can build a lineup of six guys pretty balanced from this 9K range to the 8K range, maybe one sprinkle, one or two 7K with all more elite level golfers um, without having to dip down and kind of put, throw too many darts. So that's more my strategy and thought process. Um, to start in this range, see, why don't you kick us off in the 9K range? Yeah, I love Victor Hovland for starters. I mean, I, I'll probably start a couple lineups with him. I will say this from a GPP standpoint, and that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about most of these players. He really is potentially hit or miss. I mean, he can get really hot with approach. The short game is kind of a question. He can find the putter here and there. The ball striking is definitely there, but sometimes the ball striking is really elite, especially on approach. So if he finds that approach game where he's gaining like seven or eight strokes on approach through four rounds, then you've got a guy that like might be able to win this thing. And he definitely has shown the potential to do that. So if you're, you know, starting your lineup with somebody like Victor Hovland, I think you're good to go. Um, Sam Burns is an interesting one. I've kind of gone back and forth. It might come down to ownership for him. Um, I heard your show and I've heard on some other shows too, you know, Sam Burns tends to flash when the talent pool is kind of weak. And maybe that's just a little narrative-y. And maybe it's also because Sam Burns has it doesn't have a ton of tournaments under his belt like a Justin Thomas might or some of these other guys. So uh, I don't know that I'm really bought into that, but but I don't know if I want to chase points either. It seems like I'm kind of late to the party a little bit at this point with Sam Burns. And with this field, do, do I want to dive back in? I don't know. Maybe I could I could be convinced, but there's other guys I like too much. Tony Finau is one of them. And I'm really curious to see, can you guys maybe tell me where, he, where you're looking at his ownership? I'm seeing around 13%. Yeah, I have him at 15. I got 14. So, yeah, right in there. Okay. And, and you know, because Tony Fino is one of those guys that could rise a little bit, but it's not going to get out of hand. I definitely like the upside. I like how he's been playing um, through the FedEx Cup playoffs. You know, the Northern Trust, obviously he won. But even after that, 15th at the BMW, which isn't great considering how many people are in that field. But it's good. Uh, 11th at the the Tour Championship. I think this is a good course setup for Fino more than anything. So, uh, I like him. I don't have a problem with Louis. Um I've kind of gone back and forth on him as well. He just seems like a really good ball striker. There's going to be a very easy course for him. Can he pile up the birdies? I, I don't see why not in spite of the narrative. The other guy I really like in this range, though, is Cameron Smith. And I know at least one of you likes him as well. He's one of those guys, we've talked about him before, he doesn't always rate out really well in the models because the ball striking isn't really elite ever. But the short game is there, and he just manages, of course. He's almost like a rich man's Alex Norn, who was another guy that the ball striking is not always there, but he's just some, you know, every, every third tournament, he finds himself in the top five somehow. So Cam Smith is a guy that I think is a really smart play here. So my main guys here are Victor Hovland, Tony Finau, and Cam Smith. And I may sprinkle in a little Louis and maybe a little Sam Bruns. I like it. I like it. See, can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, <laughs> so there's a reflection off yes. of your picture behind you, and there's a football game playing. But I'm like, what game can he be? What can be on? Because I don't know if there's any games on. So what game? So at this at this point in the season, college football usually has a Tuesday night game. This week it's Louisiana Lafayette at home against App State, and I I'm having a terrible time because like the turnovers for App State, they've had the two of the like freakiest weirdest turnovers, and they're down. 20 to three. I didn't like the line. They were four and a half point favorites, but when they went down seven, nothing, I put in a live bet. So I have them money line. So every like, and it's almost like over, I almost already lost the bet because they're down 17. They just had another crazy turnover and uh, it's early. It's early in the, it's early. still in the first half, but that's what I'm watching. So 
If anybody wants to catch the game, it's right <laughs> above Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. I like it. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Spencer, talk to me. Who are you looking at here in this range? Yeah, I like the $9,000 range as a whole. Um, just to name a few golfers that I'm out on, Hideki Matsuyama at $9,400 and Abraham Answer at $9,100 would be the two most notable options. The thought process is the same for both, where I think they are overpriced when put into this range and don't carry as much upside as most DFS users believe. Um, I probably don't have any real interest in Sungjae Im at $9,500 either. He's more expensive this week than he was in the Shriners last week. Uh, during a weaker field. I'm never going to hold it against someone who wins a tournament, but I will let it come into play when the derivative changes in just the week. So I think if the price tag has gone up and, you know, like all of a sudden he doesn't show us value, it's kind of tough to go back there. Kepka's technically worth a shot in large field GPPs at sub 10% because, you know, he's a guy who has the upside. But, you know, Joel, you and I talked about this. I just don't think I can get myself to go there with him. And more of that fact has to do is there's just six golfers I really like in this range. So, in no particular order, Victor Hovland, Sam Burns, Scotty Scheffler, Cameron Smith, uh, Tony Finau, and Louis Oosthuizen are all in play for me this week. Scheffler would be GPP only, but there is potential uh, massive leverage spot here available after he burned the industry at TPC Summerlin. Oosthuizen has made 17 cuts in a row, row, and while I know this isn't a tournament that possesses that feature, it just shows how steady he has been weekly. Burns and Hovland are both playable across the board for me. And then the two that graded out best were Cameron Smith and Tony Finau. So Finau has a ton of statistical data pointing in his favor. He ranks second in strokes gain total on bent grass, including being 19th in putting. He's a good bunker player. He has the length to take advantage of the wide open nature. And then Cameron Smith, and this will actually go to the point that Sia just said, which is why it shocked me so much, was actually the top ranked golfer in my model this week. So I build my spreadsheet without DraftKings prices, betting prices, or any of that being incorporated as any sort of a built-in total towards the weight. Um, but you would be surprised how infrequently this scenario plays itself out where a low $9,000 golfer grades as the top player for me. And if it does happen, you know, it happens with guys like Morikawa or... I mean, even if you go like deeper than that, like Dustin, Rory, Bryson, Thomas, Cantley, Rom, like I don't know the last time it wasn't one of those guys that was number one in my model. So even though we don't have all of them in the field this week, I think it's worthwhile that Smith is number one above, you know, Rory and Dustin and Thomas and, and some of those guys. So I really like Cameron Smith. I'm going to find a way to use him in all contests. Um, I, I have an outright ticket on him. I have a head-to-head -head bet with him included in it. Like he's just going to be somebody I'm playing a whole bunch of this week. I think you'll like. I don't. We'll see what it looks like by tomorrow. But the ownership number that originally came out, I think, was going to be really high on him, is kind of neutralized a little bit. It's like 15%, which is fine for him. Um, for this range, for me, uh, I am. I think we're all aligned on Tony Finau. Uh, I think he's a, a really good, interesting play here. I think. Um, one, the only negative for me for Finau might be the actual, uh, price, which 9,600, you know, I, you know, a Finau, I prefer a little bit in the low nine K's high eights, but, um, I think this, this course fits him well. He's pretty elite talent. So, uh, definitely an alignment there. Uh, if you didn't catch us last night, one of the things we were saying about Brooks was he, I'm a, I've taken the stance that I'm only going to play Brooks for majors. And the thought process was that these guys probably do more prep work for these golf tournaments than we really recognize in terms of, you know, setup and preparing for the course and things like that. And Brooks seems like a, like a celebrity, right? He's at the boxing match. He shows up the tournament with three girls. 
Um, and I know that, you know, you can't be as good as Brooks is at golf if you don't take it really seriously. I know he does. But I feel like he just prepares like he for the majors like he should. And the other tournaments, he's like, I said, I'm so good. I don't need to do the same thing. And I think that's why he keeps, you know, maybe being a little bit disappointing outside of majors because he doesn't put that full kind of into it. And we saw him at the boxing fight the other night in Vegas, right? And, you know, he obviously – maybe he was on the course the next day. I don't know. I'm speculating. But uh, those are the things that concern me, and the results are there, right? He hasn't had the same results outside of majors. So for that reason, until he proves otherwise – I just feel like I'm not going to keep going back to that well. Um, the one that I'm having the most trouble with this week is Sam Burns. I don't like his price or ownership. So those are the things that are getting me off of him. But he's just been so good that it's hard to fade him. Right? He's just every week he's competing. Even It's like he had a disappointing tied for 14th, which tied for 14th in a golf tournament is really good. And like that was disappointing. So he's at a point now where he's playing so well. I just, I'm going to have some shares. I can't completely fade him. But it's just – at, but by the time, you know, at the point where now he's almost in the highest tier and he's getting some ownership, it's it might be starting to be time to start looking to find leverage elsewhere. Um, the bottom of the page, I'm, I'm aligned with Usways and I like Cameron Smith. The last guy I'll mention is Hideki. I like Hideki. I know a lot of people don't. Uh, I think what's like what's bringing me more and more onto him is this really low ownership percentage. If you can get, if I can get uh, onto Hideki you know, sub 10% in a 78 main field, I think that can provide a lot of leverage. So uh, especially for big GPPs, I think that's an, an interesting play. All right. So uh, keep on, keep this train moving. We'll head down to the 8K range. Spencer, you want to kick us off here? Yeah, I'm not going to have a ton of exposure in this range. And just the one thing to say about Hideki that you just mentioned with it, um, you know, he's even dropped a little bit more since we've talked last night. So he's technically a positive value when looking at my rank versus his ownership. Like I have him at um, a little over 7% right now. So I think in really large fields, you can maybe fit him in. Like I like him a little bit more than answer in that sense, just because I don't think answers upside is nearly as good. I don't even know that's a weird thing to say because Hideki's not winning golf tournaments either, but I just feel like when answer plays, like there's so many 30th place finishes from him. And then he barely makes a cut and then he backdoors a, you know, a top five somehow out of nowhere where he should have missed the cut. So I understand that with Hideki, if enough putts fall with him, you never know. I mean, I'm probably not going to find him anywhere, but I do think in large fields, it makes some sense. But as far as the $8,000 range goes, um, Harris English at 8,900 and Shane Lowry at 8,300 are two that I don't mind plugging into builds, but the two I like the best are Terrell Hatton at 8,400 and Paul Casey at 8,200. So Hatton ranks 11th in my model for scoring at short courses and ninth in long iron proximity. Uh, that will be GPP only. And then my preferred target is Casey. He's gained with his irons in 15 straight starts off the tee in seven of eight. Uh, the putter's been ice cold, but, but bent grass is his best surface historically. And, you know, this is another thing that you and I talked about, Joel, but we see it all the time where there's just certain golfers that are overpriced when they reach that $9,000 range. And Hideki's one of them. And, and it's kind of the same thing I was saying with Hideki and Dustin. Like, at least if you can leverage their ownership, then that makes them more playable with it. Like, it's not like Hideki is 15% owned and he's also overpriced. But when you look at Casey in this, I think he's underpriced. I think he's underowned. Um, as an $8,000 golfer, all of a sudden, you know, that lack of win equity or at least the lack of perceived win equity that he has all of a sudden gets neutralized a little bit. So I'm going to find myself very overweight to KC in almost all formats this week. I like it. I like it. See, how about you? Who are you looking at here? 
Yeah, so it's it's a range I'm not really – I don't have a lot of exposure with either. But it's funny because Casey's probably my favorite guy. And it's it's mostly because of his price. I'm worried, though, because the ownership number I'm seeing is kind of high. So it, it would kind of go against that whole, like, game theory thing I, I led with. What what ownership are you all seeing? I see eight. Oh, eight. okay. Okay, so mine's off. Mine's a little higher than yours. So we'll we'll wait for Steven's article tomorrow. But that, that would be good news. Even if it was like 12%, I, I, again, it's a 78-person field. It's going to be a little bit more inflated than normal. I'd be happy to play him there. So I, listen, the approach game is there typically for Paul Casey. The short game, you know, not so much. But like, like Spencer said, he might have some advantages here uh, on this particular surface. So I like Casey. I don't really like anything up top. I mean, I think Harris English is fine. I'm not excited about it. Fleetwood is a no. It's it's funny. You guys were talking about him on, on Be The Number, and it's like, who set the, like, like, does Fleetwood have, like, a best friend that, like, makes the DraftKings lineups or, or the prices? Because that doesn't make any sense. It's almost like, hey, I'm going to throw you a bone, and we're going to pretend you're still an elite golfer, 8,800 in this <laughs> field. Uh, I just don't get it. Webb Simpson is fine. He, he doesn't really do much for me. I think if the ownership is low, I think he's interesting coming off a miscut. The perception is certainly there that his game just hasn't really been there over the last four or five, six months. Um, Coke Rack is very interesting to me as a GPP dart. Uh, the game hasn't been there, but we know the potential is. Um, but again, the only guys I'm really focused on are Paul Casey and Shane Lowry's another guy that I think could really be dialed in with the approach game. Um, he seems to figure it out uh, more often than not, you know, with the short game. So I think that's another pretty good dart, and it's probably, he's probably going to be low rostered. I think it, that's interesting because I'm actually approaching this this kind of uh, this portion of of the field a little bit different than you guys. I think this is one of my more highly owned portion. I love this this range. Um, not only do I think we can find a ton of value here, but a lot of the ownership percentage is is I think advantageous for us. I, I like a lot of these guys are ten percent sub ten percent. So uh, let's get right into it. You know, for me, it starts at the top of the range. I think Harris English is very much so in play. Um, he's a guy who has win equity. He's got top 10 equity um, and he looks like sub 10%. So I like Harris English. I think Webb Simpson's in play, another sub 10% who has, I'm not sure if I love win Webb Simpson's win equity, but in terms of someone that can be a top 10 or top 15, absolutely. I like Mark Leishman, uh, who is coming off two top five finishes. He's a just really, really good form. Um uh, I'll keep going. I, I, Terrell Hatton, I know someone Spencer was on yesterday, is another guy who came off a really good result in a European tournament who might be rolling into some really good form. I know it doesn't really matter because it's a completely different course, but he just also just happens to have a really good history at this tournament. So maybe it's the whole setups or the guys who are in the tournament or something like that that, that suits his eye. I'm, I'm aligned with Shane Lowry. I think he makes a lot of sense here. I love Paul Casey. I think uh, I think everything you guys said was spot on. Uh, I think he makes for a ton of value. I think he can easily get you a top five. He doesn't need to win the tournament at sub 10%. But what my favorite sleeper play that no one's mentioned uh, at sub 5% ownership and a really good price, Patrick Reed. You're mm-hmm. telling me at the end of this week, if Patrick Reed is in the winning lineup at like I tied for ninth, right? At 8K flat, um, I just think it's a misprice. I know he's coming off COVID. He should be past that now. I mean, it's been it's been a couple weeks removed. Um, uh, I just think he can have a really good result here. I think his woes off the tee shouldn't hurt him because it's pretty open here. Um, I really, I, I just think at eight K, Patrick Reed could easily been in the nine K range, and no one would have batted an eye 
We're getting him at a super, super favorable price and it's super favorable ownership as well to go along with it. I think it's a rare combination. That does not by no means mean that he's a safe pick. He could easily, you know, disappoint as well. I don't think I'd play him in cash, but he makes a lot of sense for GPPs. Um, can, can I say two things to that? Um, yeah. the, the first thing is I like the read call on your part. Like even with just the way I ran my model, he climbs heavily in GPPs when I try to run it like that. Um, he's 4% owned right now. Like you can take much worse start throws than Patrick Reed. Like if Patrick Reed won the golf tournament, it really wouldn't surprise anybody. If he's in the winning lineup, it's not going to surprise anybody. So I like your call there. The only one that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is Mark Leishman. And so here's what I don't like about Leishman. So the first thing would be, he has two top fives in a row. He's gained 14 shots putting combined in those two starts. So I think that that's a bit of a problem if you want to call it that. The second thing is, and, and we'll get to this in a second with Joaquin Neiman, but uh, Joaquin Neiman in a head-to-head matchup at FanDuel is minus 130 against uh, Leishman. So I don't think, I mean, maybe that's more so that Leishman is, or I'm sorry, that Neiman is underpriced in it. But, you know, when you're not the favorite against like a $7,400 golfer, that has to be a little bit worrisome in my opinion. So two things there. One, uh, I think it's a fair point that the gaining a lot of strokes putting uh, is concerning, right? But the part of the thought process also is he's capable of getting really hot with the putter and he's in that heater now. So, you know, yes, I agree. It's not going to last forever, but it could last one more tournament. If he has this hot putter, I could see that. The second is he's also been in both uh, in back-to-back tournaments. He's gaining on approach. Uh, Two weeks ago at the fourth tournament, he was gaining five strokes on approach, which is pretty significant. And at the Northern Trust, which a little bit ago, he was gained four strokes on approach. So his iron game is, for him, pretty as at the top of his game. So if he continues that hot iron play and gets that hot putter with it one more week, I think he can compete. But I do agree that that is concerning that he's been gaining so many strokes with the putter. No, I, I think that's a fair thing. I was just curious what brought you on to Leach, Leachman because he's one of like the biggest negative values in my model with the way I ran it. And it doesn't mean that it's m- my way is right with it, but uh, it's just interesting to hear your opinion of how you came to that. Well, one of the things he reminds me of that got me really like him and the thought that first thing that came to my mind is Hank Leviota. If you recall, he went on a stretch where Hank Leviota was really playing great and he was just sinking every putt, but that went on for like four weeks. And so he was really out with the putter and like, we, people were getting to a point where it's like, well, he can't keep doing that. But he did keep doing it for four weeks. So that's where I'm kind of out with Leishman. He might have another tournament or two where he stays super out with this putter. But you're right. It's due to regress eventually. But you you are correct in the sense that, like, he has kept this up before. Like, we have seen stretches where his putter – like, when his game got really bad, the putter went ice cold. He couldn't make anything a year ago. And uh, that's turned around recently. Like, clearly the putter's gotten better. And, yes, he's going to regress. He's not going to average seven strokes of tournament putting. But it doesn't mean he necessarily has to. If his approach play is going to maintain where, at least somewhere near the levels of what they've been, you know, you can reduce it somewhere. Maybe he gains in the approach a little bit more than usual. And all of a sudden you get regression somewhere and then you get like positive regression maybe off the tee from him where that you're not even expecting because it is so wide open. So, uh, I mean, I think it makes logical sense. And, And the other thing is with it, it's like there's 78 players. You have to find a way to be different. Leishman is looking at about 12% in my model right now with it, but I can't imagine that like there's, you know, Leishman goes to a specific build. I feel like, and most of those builds will be probably not the route that you're going to take with it. And so if Leishman hits with the route that you take with it, like then that's all of a sudden where you win all the money. Exactly. Exactly. And I also think like, let's keep this in mind, 12% under 15% and a 78 million field is really good, right? It is. 
at 12% to 15% in a full field, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know. But in a 78-man field, uh, that's what we're looking for. So uh, I think there's still there's still ownership value as well. Um, all right. So let's let's go down to the 7K range. Uh, Spencer, you want to kick us off here? Yeah. So my favorite play, I mean, I kind of alluded to it with Joaquin Neiman at 7,400. My model has him correctly priced at $9,100. Uh, he ranks third for me in my recalculated total driving stat and is also 13th for three putt avoidance. The numbers are better than the form he's gained uh, with his irons in 13 of 16 and off the tee in 10 of his past 12. Uh, Neiman's been a guy that I just consistently keep finding myself on. And now we're in a zone where like, I think he's, you know, Joel, you and I mentioned it on my show, like flip him and Fleetwood together. And all of a sudden Neiman's 8,800 and you would be like, that makes sense. And if Fleetwood was 7,400, you'd be like, well, that makes complete sense too with that. So I like him. Harold Varner at 7,300 should be considered as an interesting pivot off of Taylor Gooch. Four straight top 16 finishes for him. Although I will note that I like him better at a par 70 because of his questionable par five numbers. Uh, still though, I think he's in play. My model has Alex Noren, $800 underpriced at his $7,100 going rate. Back-to-back top 10s for him in his last two starts. He's a great putter that can go low in these birdie shootouts. His proximity numbers do leave something to be desired, but I think his short game can clean up most of those mistakes. Uh, Cameron Tringali at 7,000 just continues to be mispriced every single week. Like You could make an argument that there's a lack of upside that might hurt him for a birdie shootout. But he's the 40th price golfer in this field. And I think he has top 20 upside in him. You know, maybe you could go a little bit more than that even. But I think just he's way too lowly, low priced on it. And, you know, I, I always hesitate doing it. But I don't know what it would be in a week if I didn't mention Jason Day. So models aren't going to like him in any duration of time unless we filter it to like five or six years ago. But this is a property that does make logical sense for him to find success at if he is entering the year healthy. The wide open fairways will let him dominate off the tee. And at his best, he was one of the premier short game players in golf history. Um, I just think you could do worse than taking a dart throw at day at 7,000. I know that's a real shocker coming from me. So, you know, it is what it is with that. But uh, I I think day makes some sense. I I get you. I'm with you. Uh, See, how about you? Who are you looking at here? Uh, there's four guys in particular I'm looking at, and I think you you guys have said most of them. Uh, I'll start with Aaron Wise. Uh, I'd like to monitor his ownership, but Aaron Wise has been, his ball striking has been great. And the best thing about Aaron Wise is he's turned around the putter. The putter was a disaster for most of his career, most of last year, but he's been a little consistent with it in terms of it not really affecting him. And in fact, he's, he's gaining with the putter uh, lately. So match that with his ball striking. You're looking at a guy that's probably mispriced at 7,400. Um, I th- I'd like to say he's an interesting pivot off Neiman, but I think both of them will be um, pretty highly regarded, highly owned. Uh, Matt McNeely is a guy that, that probably won't pop in your model. Uh, his his approach numbers really aren't usually that good, but in Birdie Fests, I kind of like him. And the fact that he's a member here, him and Colin Morikawa are, are at least two guys that I know are members here. So, you know, does, does it really matter? Um, you know, he's going to be maybe a little bit more comfortable, maybe not. I'm not really sure, but he's certainly going to know the course and it's a first time course for most people. So I think Mav has a little bit of an edge there as does Colin, of course. So I like McNeely, uh, mostly in GPP, Alex. Yeah, Norton, yeah, we can I ask you a quick question? Uh-huh. Uh, I would think I naturally tend to think that if a guy belongs somewhere, it's to his advantage, obviously where he knows the course. One, I think devil's advocate that came to my mind to think of is, do you think that could add more pressure that they're going to their course after they belong? It almost feels like they should beat everyone because they know that course. And so they're putting more pressure on themselves from doing that. 
The answer is yes, um, but it's also because, you know, as as much as it might be nice to kind of like sleep in your own home and, and that kind of thing, you also have a lot of family obligation and friend obligation. And so you're going to the course, you're, you're texting your friends back and you're, you're answering calls. Hey, did you get my ticket? Did you leave it at, you know, here? Or, you know, th- there's a lot of like additional responsibilities that the guys traveling there just don't have because it's just them. It's just them. And maybe they brought the, their family, but it's usually it's just I'm just here solo. Whereas all these guys that are members or from the area, they have obligations to people that are going to annoy them just enough to maybe throw them off their game mentally. Um, As far as, I mean, for him, I I think it'll probably help him, but I totally agree with you. It's, it's one of those things where it could, it could absolutely hurt you. Um, But yeah, uh, it's a good question because I think you could go either way on that. Uh, Alex Noren, we don't need to address him any more than we already have. I like him. And I agree on Cameron Tringale. Cameron Tringali is is a guy that's probably underpriced here. And that's the thing I like about him most. I think he could probably, like Siwoo Kim is 7,600, Sergio, Max Homa. Max Homa is interesting, by the way. If if the ownership stays low, uh, I I think he has the upside. He's shown he has the upside to actually take down tournaments. So he might be a guy I consider. But my whole point is, if Cameron Tringali was where Justin Rose is, or Kevin Na or Max Homa or Siwoo Kim, we'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. And so I think you're getting a, a value here with him. So that, that rounds it out for me. I like it. Um, for me down here, I think there's a few guys in play. Uh, I don't love, but I think it, I, I would be okay with playing Siwoo Kim at 7,600. Uh, I can certainly understand playing Sergio Garcia um, at 7,500. I'm totally aligned on Joaquin Neiman. He feels underpriced. Um, so I think he's a good value at 7,400. I, I, I'm also aligned at Harold Vonner as a nice pivot. Um, uh, I, I think CM made some really good points about Maverick McNeely. I think Gooch, you know, he grades out well, but the ownership is just too high for someone of, of his caliber. So it's hard to stomach that level of ownership. Um, I'm surprised, see, I'm surprised you didn't mention Charlie Hoffman. Yeah, I'm actually a little surprised too. I mean, there's only so many you can like here, uh, but I, I don't mind Charlie Hoffman. The thing is, is, I've been on him lately, and it just hasn't been that impressive. You know, 44, 39, 22nd in his in his last few, 38th and 21st before that. That's not bad. Um, I just think at this point, as much of a ball striker as he was with the likes of like Keegan Bradley, who we'll talk about in a second, it just hasn't really been there for a long enough time for me to just kind of not be interested. But yeah, if you're going like team ball striking or at least t- team potential ball striking, I think Sergio's in play. Charlie Hoffman's in play. Like a lot of these guys are in play. It's just Charlie hasn't flashed in the way that I wanted him to over the last few weeks. I would agree. Um, but- I just want to say one thing really fast to that home course narrative that you guys were just talking about. So Let's use this for McNeely here. Like, I think it makes more sense with the home course narrative because you can look at it two ways with it. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. Like, to give an example where it didn't help, at least until somewhat recently, and it's not like he's been great there. You know, Xander Shoffley, every single time he goes and he plays Torrey Pines, the expectation there for so long was that he was going to perform. And he missed like two, three cuts in a row when he had all the expectations around him. And, you know, Morikawa cannot miss the cut at this tournament. But there's a lot of people that are playing him because of that narrative, and I think it's hyping up his ownership and all those things. Now, for a guy like McNeely, I think like that's a better narrative that I'm at least willing to take because he's cheaper on it. Like you're not needing to pay such a high salary, and I know like people have other reasons for why they're playing Morikawa. He's one of the premier uh, ball strikers. He's great with his approach game, and like there's certain ways that in a model you can build him up higher. But 
you know, there are downsides to it if that course history is even weighing any whatever total it is weighing for somebody on it. So I think McNeely kind of makes more sense in that. And I kind of like where C is going with that. Like, I do think he is in play also. The, like the, the other thing to point out as a potential disadvantage is that the course is set up differently for an actual PGA event from pin pa- placement to, to other things as well. So it's not like they're showing up on the course and it's a mirror image of the course that they play on, you know, once a week or, or something like that. So again, it's just something to consider. Does that throw them off? I mean, probably not, but it's, again, it's not, it's not a carbon copy. What's not to like about a guy named Maverick McNeely in a golf tournament in Las Vegas? Come on, that guy. Exactly. <laughs> Mav in Vegas makes way too much sense. You know that? <laughs> That's happening. Yeah. That's a winner. Uh, to, to, to close up this range, I will say I'm, I'm totally aligned. I think Tringale seems underpriced. Seems a little disrespected. He's been playing great. Uh, he seems to be rotating every other week, having a great ball striking week. So I think he's due for the great one. So at this price, it's like he seems like a really good play to me. Before we dive into the 6K range, it uh, looks like coaches here is asking us to oh, I'm touch, sorry. Yep. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. to touch on uh, lineup construction in regards to ownership percentage. So uh, I'll start, and you know, I would love to get your guys chime in. But for me, it's just total percentage, right? So like, if you really love some of these chalky guys that a lot of people are on, listen. There's a reason that a lot of people are on them. I'm not going to tell you not to play them. That just means if you really want to play some of these really high known guys. Find a way to get different elsewhere. Find someone who is single-digit owned to balance it out. Um, or you can do the other approach where you can just do a more balanced, you know, 10 to 15% lineup of guys where you don't have to fish for someone who's in the single digits because you're not going to anyone that's that high. So um, that's how I would look at it. I look at it from all, all six players. Try and keep yourself below a certain percentage so that you don't get all the chalk and then put yourself in a position where it's really hard to differentiate yourself from the field. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, I think it's also important to realize what kind of contests you're playing because you can be more or less aggressive compared to that. And the other thing with it, it's kind of what I was saying at the beginning of the show. Like, you're not going to, in really any build, want to play like Morikawa and Xander together. Like, you just need to figure out a way to differentiate it because they are chalk and they are chalk for a reason. And that doesn't make them a bad play, but it does start making them bad plays if you want to go like Morikawa and then Xander and Wise and Henley and you just start building Gooch, you know, whoever else. And it's like you build these lineups where you're just like your ownership percentage is so far over 100% that I mean, like, I mean, either you don't win anything, you min cash. Like, are you really going to have a GPP win with that type of a lineup? The answer is probably not, unless you're playing something that's so high stakes with just a couple people in it. Um, that's a completely different answer, though. I mean, I think for most people, they're playing contests that have a couple hundred people in them at least with it. So I think it's important to just realize, like, what kind of game you're playing in and go from there. Yeah, I think if you're playing single entries in three max, I wouldn't – just play who you want. Yeah, I wouldn't, better go, too there. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. go too crazy overthinking ownership uh, in those types of tournaments. Yeah, that's probably true. I think if you have a guy in an SE or a three max that is – definitely different then i think maybe that's the way to go so you have a guy that's definitely going to be passing the field but you got to remember this is a little different like steven has this formula he always gives it out in discord by the way coach um and you can just hit him up at sicily kid where he'll he'll tell you exactly the formula he uses in terms of like the total ownership percentage you're going to want to look at but this tournament's different right because it's 78 people it's a no-cut event so those ownership numbers are actually going to be escalated a little bit but the and and so 
two things. One, I would encourage you to ask Sicily Kid in our Discord because he might have some new numbers for a tournament like this. But the other thing, just from a just a purely kind of general conceptual standpoint, is if you have a single entry tournament and you have like four guys that are relatively chalky, but you have two guys that are like just people just don't know. Like even in this tournament, they're like seven percent, or you know, which which would be high, higher than a, a real full field, like 7% and like 9%. Those guys are going to be passing 90% of the field. So that's just something to consider. You, you can't, you can play all chalk and you definitely could cash if they all hit, but you're not going to be passing a lot of people in tournaments unless you have one or two guys that are just different from everybody else. Yeah. And, and Andrew, uh, let me reiterate for sing for single entries and things like that. Don't worry about the ownership stuff so much. Just play, you might leave me one guy you want to get different, but for the most part, play who you want. Don't I think we say this ownership stuff, it's really more focused on big GPP tournaments where it's more important. At single entry, I would just play who you want. And I, I want to just say one more thing. I wouldn't ask, like, I, I don't – I wouldn't think of roster construction as would you go all single digits. That isn't – I wouldn't – you want to play the guys you want to play. You shouldn't start thinking about how can I find low ownership – you should go find the guys you want to play based on the metrics that we're talking about, why we're telling you guys. And then after you've done that, and then if you look at it and you're like, I'm just playing all the chalk guys, then you're okay, let me fix this. Let me move a guy or two and get some lower owned guys to balance it out. But don't just start your build based on percentage because that's how you can lose everything, just not picking golfers that are supposed to compete. Pick the golfers that are supposed to compete this week, the best picks, and then look at the ownership and say, okay, how can I get this to maybe be a little bit more advantageous for myself? Right. And, and I think there might be people that are like, well, yeah, but at the beginning of the show, you guys were talking about how popular like Xander and, and, and Colin were and like, why even bring that up? Well, the answer is that the margins aren't really that, ext- that, that extreme from like a Colin to a, let's say, a, a lower owned like Tony Finau, for example. Tournaments. Yes, of course, Colin is better than Tony Finau, but tournament to tournament. Absolutely. Tony Finau could play better than Colin Morikawa. So if you're talking about a guy that's like 25 percent owned versus a guy that's like 16 percent or 13 percent or even 10 percent, that's a really big difference when you consider the variance of golf. So that's why it it kind of matters when you're like, do I really want to take like a 30 percent Xander Shoffley? And I'm not saying that's what his ownership is going to be or, or Justin Thomas when I could have a guy that's a similar talent, that's half the percentage. Like that's sort of like some of the thinking that, that we have now, when you get down to the lower ranges, maybe that margin is different. You know, the margin between some of these six K guys that we're going to talk about and some of the eight K guys or seven K guys, maybe those margins are, are, are more extreme, but that's some, that's kind of what you have to consider. And the last thing I'll, I'll add on this, and then we'll move on to the six K range is golf has a lot more volatility. And that's why this is more important than sports like football, right? In the NFL, there's going to be very few weeks where some middle tier, bottom tier tight end outscores Travis Kelsey. It's just Travis Kelsey gets too much volume and he's going to be better, right? That we know. Whereas in golf, there's going to be plenty of weeks where Tony Vino beats Morikawa. Morikawa still might finish with a better season, but at the golf tournament, the golf tournament, there's a lot of volatility and, you know, Tony Vino can beat, you know, Morikawa on a specific course and things like that. So it's a smaller gap for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's get to the 6K range. For me, I'll start here. I'm going to be pretty light down here. I don't think we have to dive too far into the 6K range for this tournament. Uh, the few guys I like, I know C uh, is going to talk about Keegan. I know Sia loves Keegan. <laughs> I do think Keegan's uh, number is, is low here, so I think he makes sense at 6,900 um, as a good value, especially at, at a pretty low ownership. Um, I like Ian Poulter. He's been playing really well, so he's certainly in play at 6,900. 
And then I'll scroll down a little bit more. I like um, the this kind of the, the three guys right here at 64 and 6,500 between Brandon Grace, Stuart Sink, and Cameron Davis. I think all three of these guys are in the 6K range, head and shoulders, kind of above some of the rest of the field. So I think we were getting some value in them down here. But other than that, I'm going to – I'm definitely not – the lowest price guy I'd consider is Kevin Kisner. I don't really love him. Maybe I'll have a share or two. Other than that, you know, there's no reason to hit, go down that low in this tournament. Um, I, I don't think some of those guys can really compete in this field. So that'll be it for me down here. See, how about you? Who are you looking at down there? Uh, let's see. Keegan Bradley, I do like. It's just a price thing. Same with Cameron Tringali. I think both of those guys have the potential to well outperform what their price tag is. Keegan doesn't make me super excited, especially with this putter. And the ball striking hasn't been great, which is why he's 6,900. But I think he's a value. I think Kevin Streelman is interesting, a guy that's probably going to get relatively ignored. A shorter hitter, but a good ball striker. Coming off, uh, let's see, was it a missed cut last week? I'm trying to remember. He didn't have oh, – he was 47th. It wasn't anything great. Um, I, again, a guy that's going to be relatively ignored for a variety of reasons. I, I think he's a smart play. Um, Brendan Grace is interesting to me. Not very good off the tee. That shouldn't crush him here. Very crafty player. Um, decent on approach. And he flashed a little bit um, towards the end of the tour season last year. So I think that's an interesting price at 6500 I think Johnny Vegas is going to be – pretty popular for good reason. You can smash it off the tee. His ball striking in general has been pretty good. Uh, he can be good with the putter. Uh, so I think that's a pretty good value at 6,300 because again, you're getting four days. Can Johnny Vegas have two really hot days? Yeah, that's definitely possible. Other than that, I think Cam Davis is interesting. Like you said, Joel, um, there's not a lot of guys I love here, but there's definitely guys like the guys I mentioned that I'm willing to play. I love it. I love it. Um, Spence, talk to me. 6K range. Yeah, I kind of agree with you guys. I think there's a pretty substantial drop-off in this section for me. Um, Van Royen might be worth a shot at 6,700. Emiliano Grio, Keegan Bradley, as you guys said, have the approach numbers to find success. I don't technically trust either, but they have upside to hit a bunch of greens. Hopefully they make a putt or two and they can outperform their price tag. Uh, Cameron Davis is going to be very popular at 6,400, but we've seen him before uh, at these long open courses. He won at Detroit Golf Club, um, and that's, I kind of think, a decent non-Fazio comp there, just because you can bomb your and gouge your way out there and kind of uh, get around and do that. Um, Stuart Sink, 6,500. Matt Jones, 6,300. Both of those guys are showing value in my model. Sink might be under 1% owned with where the perception is around his game, but I think Sink has proven he has the upside, and he's created a lot of distance off the tee here recently. Like he's sneaky long. So his length might come in the player. I think sneak a sink is somebody that not a lot of people are going to be on. And it wouldn't shock me if he gave you like a top 20 finish from there. And then I like Carlos Ortiz at 6,200 and I don't mind Mackenzie Hughes as a dart throw at 6,100. Uh, those are the two lowest guys I would go to, but irons have turned around for Ortiz as, as of late. He's gained in eight of his last nine starts. Driver has seen a similar trajectory with a positive total in six of seven. Uh, I think there's some upside with him. And then on the flip side, Hughes at least has the putting potential to compete in a big event. We saw him flash recently at both the U.S. Open and Open Championship. So it's just a skill set. I mean, maybe he gets hot with it. Maybe he can give you a top 10 out of nowhere with it. But yeah, I mean, I like Sink. I like Ortiz. I like Hughes. I really like Cameron Davis, but that's going to be a popular play. And then I'm just not going to have a whole ton uh, in this range other than that. All right. I think uh, that's – oh, go ahead, Sia. Sia, you're on mute. 
Let me point out that uh, Sicily could just pined in here. Uh, don't play CH3. His wife is expected to give birth later this week, according to Steven's wife, uh, who was a former LPGA player. So, yeah, so CH3, maybe that means he kind of has to bail or his mind is on something else. By the way, I'm so glad he chimed in because... Uh, uh, we all need to know that Harold Varner III, otherwise known as HV3, uh, he just had a kid two days ago. Liam was just born on October 10th. So I think there was some speculation that, well, you know, maybe he won't play or something like that. Uh, he was asked and he, he literally, I'm looking at the quote right now. He says, I'm not taking any time. <laughs> he says, I'm not taking any time off. That kid's got to eat. Formula isn't cheap. No, it's not. But at the end of the day, the, the kid's not cheap, and I still love playing golf, and my wife's not working. So it's this thing called being a father, provide, you figure it out. So if you want to play, if you want to go down Narrative Street a little bit with your stroll or just a nice stroll down Narrative Street with Liam, I mean, I don't usually like playing HV3, but whatever euphoria you might have from, you know, having your son, you know, three being four days removed from that, I mean, is it in play? Do I need to make a first round leader play in a second on HV3? I don't know, but it's just something to consider. Um, and then I, I just wanted to point one other thing out. We do have a question about Swafford and Harry Higgs. Well, hold on. Before we I, move oh, on, go ahead. Go ahead. I got to touch on HV3. Yeah. If you want to think about it this way, HV3 to make a big putt in order to buy himself a new pair of Jordans? Maybe. HV3 to make a big putt to feed his family? Yeah, I like HV3. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit more, a little more pressure. Pressure could be good or bad for some people. So maybe uh, I agree. I think that I actually get the good thing. I would I would play him for, for that reason. I think the rule on on like having kids, I think it's like a seven to 10 day window where it's not really a distraction because you're still in that euphoric stage of, oh, my gosh. I, like I, And then like after like day 10, like on day 11, it's like, oh, God, like what is this new <laughs> life I have? And so, and so then it sets in and then it becomes a distraction and you take time off of golf and, and all that stuff. So um, I think we're still in that window. Um, so I think it's all systems go on the baby narrative. Uh, let's go Liam. Let's go HV3. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm in. Um, was so, there, yeah, go ahead. so coach had questions about, uh, he says on a Korean phenom, J Kim, any thoughts on him or any thoughts on Hudson Swafford and Harry Higgs? And he points out that Jake Kim played well at the Barracuda. Any thoughts on any of these guys? I'm not playing any of them. Hudson Swafford's interesting. Higgs is, you know, generally pretty good on approach. I mean, if you need the salary relief, I don't hate it, but I'm not on any of these guys. How about you guys? I'm not on any of them. Um, I The one caveat I would say in their defense is that because they're guaranteed four days. So, you know, that if they have one really good day of the four, they could – you know, creep your way into a lineup if you really want to go some high salary guys, but I just don't think I have to dip that low. So I'm I'm not on them. Yeah. I mean, I think you could make an argument that maybe they should be like a hundred or two hundred dollars more than they are, but I think they're kind of where they should be with it. Like each one of them's outside of the top fifty of my model. I'd probably have the most interest in Swafford, I guess, if you made me pick one of the group, but I'm not going to have any exposure to them either. All right. Well before we move into the outright market. Do we want to do good chalk, bad chalk? Should we bring it back? Yeah. All right. Go. All right. So uh, I don't know. Do you want me to run it? I'll run it. I'm going to do Yeah, because I don't trust my numbers right now. Okay. All right. I'm waiting for Steven's article tomorrow. I'll kick us off. We'll start at the very top. The first question will be Xander Shoffley. Good chalk, bad chalk. Spence. Uh, 
uh, he's I that's the problem is like I still think he's good chalk like I know he's going to be popular but I still like Xander like I don't have a problem with anybody that tries to fit him into a build see ya yeah I'll go bad chalk bad chalk I'm with you um I may have even changed my tone from yesterday but a <laughs> tough one Victor Hovland good chalk bad chalk I think <sighs> I mean, Hovland's kind of in that same territory. Like, if he's under 20-something percent, I'm going to say good for Hovland just because I think that he's due for some positive regression. So, good for me. Yeah, yeah he's going to be good for me, and I think that 20% caveat is really important. If he's above 20%, then it's just that's just a little much because it, it looks like Xander's definitely going to be above 20%. Yeah, so, I, think, I think I'm aligned. I would like to see him in the teens above 20 Bad chalk for me. One thing I'll add is that Kinder Religion on this kind of chalk ownership percentage conversation. Another thought process of why people think so much about ownership uh, when they're building their lineups is kind of the backwards way to look at it is if somebody ends up being 25% and they don't do that well, that means you now have leverage. 25% of the field is eliminated and you only have to compete against 75% because you don't have that person and 25% of the people do. So that's another way to think about it. So, so, we also, when we talk about bad chalk, it's because there's so many people on them that in golf, such a volatile sport that they don't have a great week and 25% of the people have them. Now you only have to compete with 75% of the pool, which is a huge advantage. So that's another thought process around it. Um, keep this moving. Sam Burns, good chalk, bad chalk. Spence. If he's going to be 20% owned, I, I mean, I kind of agree with you on this, Joel. Like it starts he's $9,800. He's 20% owned. I'm going to go bad. Um, I don't mind Sam Burns, but I, I guess bad with everything given to us. Yeah. See ya. I mean, he's so hot right now. He's, he's taken down everything. Like, it's like, it's just like, it's the squarest, like chasing points play of all time. So as much as I like Sam Burns, it's bad chalk. I had the same notion. I want to like Sam Burns, but I just, him at that number and that ownership, it's, it's bad chalk for me. Um, all right. All right. How about Louis O? I think Louis good chalk. Yeah, I'm going to go good chalk as well. I like. I think he's safe. So I, I prefer Louis for cash and GPPs. So I'll probably say bad chalk. Um, is there anyone else I'm missing? Well, for the record, the context of this game is GPP only. So that's how I'm answering the question. I'm answering strictly for GPP because if it's, I mean, you know, cash, I'm willing to kind of bend a little bit. That's totally fair. That's that actually should have been obvious. I was trying to cheat just so I could give a little credit to no cheating. But yeah, that's you're right. <laughs> um, interesting one, Aaron Wise. Good talk, bad job. I think, and then this may end up blowing up in my face. I think Aaron Wise is very, very bad chalk this week. I hate that he's chalk. And, you know, because I, I like him, I even I think I might even have him on my outright first round leaderboard as I gaze at it. Uh, yeah, I mean, 7K chalk is usually bad chalk. So I'm going to have to as much as I like him, I have to go with Spencer here. It's bad chalk. Yeah, I agree. And the last one we're going to do. Actually, we're going to do two more. Two more. Uh, Taylor Gooch. Good chalk, bad chalk. Uh, I like Taylor Gooch. He's bad chalk at 20 percent. No, thank you. Bad chalk. I agree. Bad chalk. And the last one, it's questionable chalk. Um, but I, I, for him, I still think this is chalk. So we're going to go Alex Norin at over 10%. Good oh. talk, bad chalk. Uh, I, 
I like Alex Noren. I guess I'll say good chalk. At over 10% in a 78-person field, I, I don't really mind it too much. So I'm just going to go ahead and say good chalk. Fair. And I will ag- ag- agree with it's questionable if it's even chalk at that point because mm. chalk's probably got to be at least over 15%. So uh, I think he's he's good chalk, probably not even chalk to begin with. So that wasn't really fair. But good segment. Love it. Um, and now the outright market. So who are we betting outright I'll start us here because um, I had a little tease earlier in the show where I said I saw a number. I was looking at the odds, and I was like, that looks too good to be true. I spent a good amount of time talking about him when we went through the breakdown, and I just bet, be completely honest with you, $150 on him to win the tournament, which I don't normally bet that much on guys. So, Can we guess? Yes. Okay, well, what, ra- what, price, what price range is he in? We have to give I'll us give that. it away. It'll be too obvious. Oh, really? Not the top one, if that helps. I didn't think it was the top one because it's a good number. Uh, is it the 9K range? No. Oh, wow. All right. Well, it's Paul I, I guess I, I have a guess, maybe. Paul um, Casey's my guess. Yeah, Paul Casey would be my guess also. Oh, wow. You're both wrong, and you both probably would have gotten it with your next guess. I'll give you one more. Huh. Um. You're both going to kick yourself when I tell you. Oh, is it Jason Kokrak? No. Is it Harris English? Patrick Reed. Oh, of course. Patrick Reed. Yeah. 65 to 1 to win the tournament. Way too long for me. That is, he shouldn't be that. That's like down there with some of these. All right, let me just. Alex Noren is 65 to 1. Exactly. To give you an idea of how low that is. So wow. is Harold Varner and Max. Max Holm is 60 to 1 ahead of him. So. This is a guy that has way more win equity than I think those guys do. I think this is just too long of a number for him. So um, do I think he's the favorite by any means? Or the way? Absolutely not. But I think he should be closer to 30 or 35 to 1 than 65 to 1. So therefore, I think it's a good value. So I like the Patrick Reed number. The only other the other number I like here uh, for an outright is, is actually Victor Hovland at 28 to 1. And Victor Hovland's the type of guy where, like, depending on how I break down by tomorrow – he might be a guy I just bet outright and then fade in DFS and just say, you know, if he has a great week, I'll have that ticket. And then if not, then, you know, I'll be good in the DFS range. So mm-hmm. those are my outrights. Uh, Sia, who are you looking at here? Hovland is my main guy. I'm definitely going to be making that play at 28 to 1. Cam Smith is also at 28 to 1. I don't think Paul Casey has much win equity, but 45 to 1 was a good enough number for me to sprinkle a little bit on it. Um, Mav McNeely, I'm just writing the home course narrative and Aaron wise, this is really interesting. So Mav McNeely, by the way, if I didn't mention it, 55 to one Aaron wise at 60 to one. So this is kind of perfect with what you said, Joel, I think maybe he's, he might end up being a fade in DFS. Maybe if I play some cash, I'll, I'll play him. Maybe I'll play him in one GPP just to have a share, but he might be more of like a top 20 guy outright guy. So it's 60 to one. I don't think it's super realistic that any of these, you know, 45 to 1, 55, 60 to 1 guys win it. But, uh, you know, so Tovlin and Cam are my favorite, but uh, I'll go ahead and sprinkle a little bit on Aaron Wise at 60 to 1. I love it. I love it. Spence, who are you looking at here in the outrights? Yeah, I heavily considered Hovland. I didn't end up punching a ticket on him, but Rory McElroy, 20 to 1. Uh, Cameron Smith, 34 to 1. That's a fan duel number. Um, Scotty Scheffler, 33 to 1. And Joaquin Neiman, 55 to 1. Nice. I like it. Uh, and now where we make our real money, this is where we break the bank. This is where we bankrupt the casino on the first-round leader. Spence, kick us off. Who are your first-round leader tickets? 
All right, so I will have three this week. Jonathan Vegas, 95 to 1. That is on FanDuel. Alex Norin, 60 to 1. That is also on FanDuel. And I think I have to do it. Jason Day, 70 to 1. That is a homer play, we'll call it that. But at some point, he's going to pay off all the losses. And it's going to be this week in my hometown. I like it. I like it. Get that money back. Uh, for me, I have, I have a, a simple one, just a couple of plays. I like Stewart Sink at 90 to 1. Um, I think Eric Van Ruyen at 71 is an interesting play. And my more realistic lower odds uh, dart is going to be Cameron Tringale at 45 to 1. I like uh, that card. See ya. Talk to me. Who are we breaking the bank on? All right. So let's start with Jason Kokrak at 40 to 1. I don't trust him over four days, but maybe he can flash in day one. Uh, let's see. Mav McNeely at 55 to one. So uh, believe it or not, they've got Jonathan Vegas at 55 to one instead of the 90 to one uh, uh, that Spencer got. Now this is DraftKings, not FanDuel, but shop for your numbers. Vegas was one of my guys. So recapping Kokrak, Mav, McNe- uh, Mav McNeely, and I'm writing the, the home base narrative with Mav, of course, uh, Jonathan Vegas, 55 to one. I'm, I'm just going to throw out Hudson Swafford at 130 to one because it's a fun number. Uh, and I want to point out that HV3 is 50 to 1. I don't really love that number. I'm just pointing it out. But the breaking news at 9.19 p.m. on October 12th, 2021, is that your first round leader of the CJ Cup, the, the person you should be investing all of your money in and all your friends and, and loved ones' money for first round leader is none other than, we've talked about him, we're fading him in DFS mostly, but the putter is coming around and the ball striking is there. The number isn't great, but it's good enough. Your first round leader at the CJ Cup is none other than Aaron Wise. You're welcome, America. Okay. All right. There you have it, everyone. You just got rich. All you had to do was listen to a podcast for an hour, and now you're rich. So Easy. it was really not that complicated. Um, congrats to you all. Uh, the only thing I have left for you is uh, see ya. Yeah, I'll just uh, just one more thing. We completely forgot, but uh, sports. Oh,